Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on Earth and its last and greatest wilderness, on a voyage to Antarctica. Hello and welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica, brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm your host, Alok Jha. This week I'm talking to the award-winning writer Philip Hoare about his lifelong love for and obsession with whales and their history in Antarctica. Philip's numerous books include Leviathan, or The Whale, which won the 2009 BBC Samuel Johnson Prize and has been published all over the world. His latest book, Albert and the Whale, is published by Fourth Estate in the UK. He's also a professor of creative writing at the University of Southampton. One of the things that if anyone knows anything about your books is that you are obsessed and love whales. Uh, where, where did that obsession start? Well, in a weird sort of way, it did start in childhood with, with many people, rather like sort of liking dinosaurs. Um, although for me, it was a very um, disturbing experience, ultimately, because I really was tuned into whales, I suppose, by the whole Save the Whale um, uh, movement of the late 1960s, early 1970s. And I suppose that's what sensitised me to the whale, apart from seeing them on Jacques Cousteau's uh, documentaries. Um, and uh, we pestered, myself and my sisters, who were equally mad on whales and dolphins, pestered our parents to take us to Windsor Safari Park, um, which had uh, a dolphinarium. Um, it's now Legoland. And... Um, we were very, very excited about this. This is back in the early 70s, I guess. And we sat at the front of the, of the pool, which is really an overgrown concrete pool. You know, it's really grim. I actually found some photographs my father took that day, which we never knew he took. Um, but then into this really just brutal place, um, uh, a pod of dolphins appeared. And then... The pool was cleared and a big black gate opened up at the other end and in swam Ramu, who was billed in the, in the program as our other performer. It was an orca, a killer whale. And uh, for most of your listeners, uh, very aware of orcas, incredibly social, intellectual or intelligent, maybe intellectual is pushing it, but certainly intelligent um, incredibly successful animals, probably the most successful mammal on the planet, not, not human beings. Orca have been around and they evolved state for six million years and they are present in, in every ocean. And this poor benighted creature jumped through a hoop, balanced a ball on his nose and got a fish as a reward. And for me, that was a kind of a moment of apostasy. I had to stop loving these animals um, because I saw the way they were treated. So, so the sort of fast forward from that to the year 2000 when I went on, on holiday, I went to, to Cape Cod, and uh, I didn't realise that this is a great whale-watching place. Um, uh, and it was only on the day before I was going home, actually, that I realised that you could go out on a boat and see whales. And uh, I was very dubious about this because I thought this would be another kind of circus performance, uh, a mediated human experience. I kind of expected them to be feeding them with fish as well. And I stood in the prow of this whale watch boat along with all the other 
hunters. And then half an hour later, in the middle of Stellwagen Bank, which is a protected marine, res- marine reserve off the coast of New England, 40 foot, 40 ton combat whale jumped down right in front of me. And, and that's what started me writing about whales. And I, I have no scientific background. I have, you know, I, I have no knowledge in that respect. And I didn't really know that much then. But I just went on this crazy voyage of like talking to scientists, going on the whale watch boats, going out to the Azores eventually and, uh, and, 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 and getting to know the animals in the water. So how did you, at that point, you know, in, in 2000, when you saw this whale leaping from the water and had this visceral experience that um, sort of, that, that was, was, I guess, an emotional experience in some respects, um, how did you then begin to square what you saw there and the subsequent um, interested whales with, with what you'd seen as a child, uh, this, this trapped whale? What, what, what were you trying to sort of get at? Well, it, for me, the great way into the whale was through Herman Melville's Moby Dick, um, because that text, written back in 1851 by a great New Englander um, who was on the whaling boats as opposed to whale watching boats, and they're quite interestingly comparative, those two processes. They're both humans going out trying to find whales. Um, Melville, no one has ever written better about the whale since Melville, really. Um, and in that great compendious, sprawling, digressive, mad, subversive, sexy, crazy book, um, I, I kind of found more questions than answers, but they were kind of questions which were metaphysical and cultural and transcendental and, and very, very disturbing um, because he was trying to work out what he was doing out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, slaughtering these animals. Um, he was part of a whaling uh, uh, mission out to the line, as they called the, equa- the equator. And Melville, like the other whalers at the time, knew far more than anyone else on this planet, human-wise, that these animals were sentient, that they were socially organised that they had a kind of culture was expressed in sound, mainly for whales, but also in the demonstration of physical, what we would call affection. Um, There's a description in Moby Dick in the chapter, The Grand Armada, which is, I think, the first piece of natural history documentation uh, from a cultural point of view, certainly in literature. He and Queequeg, who is the Maori-based tattooed warrior in the book, um, Ishmael, the narrator, both lean over the side of the boat and through this incredibly clear water see a female sperm whale pushing her newly born calf to the surface, still attached by the umbilical cord. And it's a moment of extraordinary connection because they are looking at this thing, this, this scene for its own sake, for its own beauty. A moment later, they're about to kill them. Uh, and then the slaughter in that chapter is terrible to behold. But it's that one point in which Melville allows the kind of emotion, the kind of emotion that I saw when I was at Windsor Safari Park. And that was what I felt, you know, that kind of cooperation between something that you are creating, that you are 
you know, the, the, the reason why they could see that is this enormous effort, had, uh, these humans had gone out in this boat all the way to the ocean to kill these animals. But there's this moment, this kind of interlude at which things could have gone the other way. So for me, the whale represents so many things. It represents this bridge to a natural world, partly because they are so attractive as creatures. They are so mysterious and majestic. You know, the great sort of sometimes dismissive phrase used by biologists is charismatic megafauna. You know, like polar bears and pandas, you know, they're kind of the, um, the eye candy of, of ecology. The things um, to get people interested in, in caring about the world. Exactly, as opposed to snot-eating worms and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, so that's what fascinates me is the, the, the whale's experience of human beings. You know, I, I can write about our experience of whales, but I want to also write about the whale's experience of us. probably think of whales as as you say charismatic megafauna the the idea of this beautiful creature in the, in, the, in the ocean and perhaps we should go and watch them but they should be saved and looked after back then in herman melville's time in moby dick's time this was not the case at all could you just describe for us what the human relationship with whales was um back in um the 19th century um what, what, why why were people searching for and killing whales well, they're part of the relentless economic progress of the 19th century. Um, they were part of the Industrial Revolution. They lubricated and lit the Industrial Revolution. Whale Quite oil, literally, yeah. Li literally, whale oil was used uh, in factories, in manufacture. Uh, it was used to lubricate pencil lead. Um, it was used to light the streets of London, Paris, New York and Berlin. It was an essential part of, of the 19th century imperial and colonizing progress. You know, the, the, the whaling ships since the late 18th century had been, been taking Western influence out to the Pacific, for instance, um, carrying missionaries sometimes, supplying the missionaries. So that whole sense of the way the world was being opened up to Western influence was, was predicated on, on whales um, and whaling. You know, the, 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 the colonies of New South Wales and, and, and Tasmania, Van Diemen's Land, as it was then called, and New Zealand were really dependent on whaling um, for their development as, a, as viable um, uh, settlements. Um, and so the whale... As unknown as it was, as unseen as it was, very, very, very few people would have ever seen a whale, and certainly not alive. Mostly, your experience of a whale was a slumped, deflated monster, a leviathan on a, on a beach. Um, yet, these animals are really an important part of the uh, e e economic structure of the Western world. And just to get into the detail, it was the a particular part of the blubber of a sperm whale, wasn't it, that was very, very highly prized as, as an oil for, for a lot of these purposes? Well, they were called sperm whales because they believed that the oil, as you mentioned, um, which is actually uh, 
present in the in what is in fact the the, the nose of the animal. So the head, the great square, pugnacious square head of a sperm whale, is filled with spermaceti oil, uh, and it gets its name because the sailors, when it first pierced that head, uh, thought it was the whale semen. Um, and this oil is in fact um, it's an extraordinary material. Um, it's incredibly fine oil which becomes waxy when it when it when it when it hits sort of um cool air um and if the whale that oil has a unique quality and it's a bioacoustical medium through which it can focus its sound and intensify its sound So it's creating this sound, uh, which is bounced back to the back of the skull, the concave skull of the whale, uh, and then focused back through this bioacoustical oil in a series of chambers, and then is emitted. And that sound is the loudest sound naturally uh, created by an animal on the on, on the planet. It's, it can get to the the, the, the loudness of a, of a of an aeroplane. For humans. That oil was prized because it burnt without smoke. The unit of light itself, the lumen, is the measurement of how much light is given off by a certain part, a uh, certain measurement of a sperm whale candle. And in places like Nantucket, off the coast of New England, uh, there were huge factories just processing these candles, which were the most desirable form of lighting. Um, Whale oil also burnt smokeless in, 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 in lamps as well. Um, but the oil was used for many other things, for, 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 for um, uh, making leather supple. Um, it was used later on in, during war. It was uh, used as a, as, as, a, as a way to treat trench foot. Wilfred Owen, um, when he's about to send his uh, troops over the top in a in the First World War battle, supervises the anointing of their feet in the most kind of ritualistic way with this whale oil. Um, so it, it, it's, it's very strange, the, the paradox again of the whale, that the whale and the sperm whale is one of the deepest diving of all whales. It can dive for a mile in depth, it can stay down for two hours or more. Um, yet brings back, as it were, this light giving energy, as though it's kind of processing the great series of, of, of chemical events which life consists of, and that ends up being a candle being burnt in an aristocrat's house. Listening to you talking just then, um, I've got some very, very pleasant flashbacks of reading, reading Leviathan, your book, and, and, uh, and I would recommend anyone uh, who wants to know about all of this stuff to just, please, just to, to go and, go and devour, devour that, that, uh, that book. Um, so, so th- th- we're talking about how whales have become this, this, they have this magical oil almost that everyone's searching for so that's created almost a uh, sort of the aristocratic uh, 19th century lifestyle. Um, and it's also in the, this hunt for other oil um, is, is the reason that the UK, that, that Britain ends up sort of sighting Antarctica because uh, it's just chasing these animals all around the world. Um, just can you give us a picture of that time? So we, we know about the, 
we, we talked on this podcast and people are probably familiar with the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, the Scots and the Shacklestons going to the continent and trying to find the South Pole and, and, and all of those feats of endurance. But the first sightings of those southern places were from whalers. With the invention of steam-powered ships and also, much more horrifically, of grenade harpoons, these animals came within human remit. They hadn't been for Moby Dick, um, for Herman Melville, um, fin whales and blue whales are too sleek and fast um, and not, didn't have a social habit in the way sperm whales and humpback whales have. Um, and suddenly it was kind of open season on these animals. And the slaughter that went on in the Antarctic from the whaling stations established by the British and the Norwegians um, is incomparable. And much more so because they're so far uh, away from civilization. They're so far out of sight of London and New York and the, the civilized, quote, civilized um, centers of commerce and trade um, to which these animals being returned in barrels of oil. Um, they're rendered down, their fat is rendered down, and they end up in the food chain too. Um, uh, 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 in the Second World War, um, uh, famously, Britain was partly sustained, not in a major way, but certainly whale meat was being eaten. My mother and father recall um, eating whale meat during the Second World War. There were recipes for whale curry and whale burgers, amazingly enough. Um, and indeed, Southampton, where I'm speaking to you from now, um, ships were still coming from the Antarctic in the 1960s, laden with whale oil, which became stork margarine. So anyone who ate stork margarine in the 1960s was eating whale. You couldn't really avoid whale, actually, um, in the 19, up, up until the 1960s, and probably even the early 70s. Um, it was still part of the, the economy of the west what what did all of that do to the whale populations in these previously untouched parts of the world incredibly good question um well it killed three million great whales uh, in the 20th century and that and that that toll is pretty much all down to the, the mostly down to the whaling in the southern ocean of antarctica um and, of course, they were killing the largest animals, the largest blue whales. And we know that they were, they were uh, experiencing, certainly at the beginning of the 20th century, blue whales which were larger than they reach now um, um, uh, because the genetic uh, predominance of the large males um, uh, was being sort of bred out, really, by the cull that was going on. Um, so but what we don't know and possibly never will know is what the effect on whale culture was of that Holocaust. Um, you know, why the, what, while their glycerine was being used to make nitroglycerine for the First and Second World War, where they were literally enabling the destruction of human on human in the First and Second World Wars, um, their own culture was suffering in a terrible way. I mean, we know now blue whales reduced to, well, certainly at the beginning of the century, down to 15, maybe 18,000. It's a pathetic, paltry number. Um, estimates of them reaching their millions before, before the Great Cull began in, in the 20th century. 
Um, some animals have recovered, and there is some evidence of blue whales recovering in the Antarctic, but they will never possibly return to those numbers. Hello, I'm Camilla Nichols, CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage, from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, and we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet and even adopt a penguin at UKAHT.org or search for the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Whaling has, as, as a commercial enterprise certainly has, uh, has largely stopped and, and I think that people have understood that, that killing these, these animals is, 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 is going to just decimate their population, destroy their populations. And in the 80s, we, had a, what we, we began a moratorium, the 1980s, we began a moratorium on commercial whaling. Yet some countries still kill whales um, for commercial and, quote, scientific purposes. Um, what, what is the justification, if any, for, for, for the scientific killing of whales right now? Well, countries such as Norway, Japan, Iceland, um, North America, the USA, um, they hunt whales from uh, a cultural basis um, uh, as an indigenous uh, economy. Um, the problem with that is, of course, they're not using traditional methods to kill whales. They're using grenade harpoons and uh, uh, and remote killing uh, operations, which are intensely cruel. I mean, these animals can take three and a half hours to die. And these are animals which and it, it, I don't believe in hierarchies of, of, of organisms, but they're certainly very, very intelligent, sensate creatures. If you see a whale, and I've often seen humpback whales, for instance, where when they're feeding, seagulls will sort of land on their backs. The whale will quiver with the feeling of a bird on its back. But the, the whale is an incredibly, it's like us, you know, it, it's, it's a very sensate creature. And um, the idea of killing these animals in countries such as Norway and Japan, reason that there are species of whales such as the minke whale, there are a, a, a resource to be fished. Um, it's a different cultural attitude. Um, and if you go to Iceland or Norway, there will be whale on the menu. Um, How do you feel about it's that? Not, I mean, uh, just... I, 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 well, I mean, from a, if you're talking about an indigenous tradition, it's difficult to argue about it. But if you're talking about as in Iceland, for instance, where whale meat consumption is pretty, very much a touristy thing. You know, tourists think this is what you do when you go to Iceland. That's much more ambiguous. Um, so even putting aside the fact that you would never be allowed to slaughter a domestic animal for consumption in the way we kill whales. I mean, if, you, if it took cows three and a half hours to die, no one would accept that, I hope. I hope. Um, and yet these very rare wild creatures are killed in that way. 
around the world, though, apart from these in- examples you've talked about, where there's an indigenous um, tra- tradition um, to, in, in, with with in the in the use of whales like this, around the world, now, what's your sort of um, impression of how well we're protecting or trying to protect whale populations? Whales are dying in bycatch, you know, because they are being caught in nets, which ultimately kills them very slowly, either through um, uh, ne- necrosis, the, 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 the nets get caught around the peduncle, the, the, the part of the tail which, re- which meets the body where it's narrow and that can just rot off. It, it can lash around, you know, fishing nets can lash around the head of a whale. I've seen that myself a number of times, um, stops them feeding properly. Um, but then there are other, of course, anthropogenic um, causes of whale death, which are more insidious, which such as chemicals um, in, 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 the, in the ocean, which pass through the food chain through, through whales and impact their immune systems. Um, sound is, is probably one of the biggest issues for, for whales. If you imagine when Herman Melville was sailing the seven seas, humans made almost no noise in the ocean. Now it's a cacophony of engines and wind farms and seismic surveys, um, military sonar. Uh, for whales especially, but for most marine organisms actually who live in a world of sound, because sight isn't usually very um, useful in, in, in the ocean, um, these, are, these have terribly deleterious effects on them. They, they really affect their, um, their communication systems, um, the way they uh, hunt for food, with the way they find food. Um, uh, and really, we know also they, they do induce a great deal of stress so that we know, for instance, that there's a resident population of uh, orca in the northern waters around the UK which have not had um, a viable calf for the past 10 years. Can I ask you about the, the the sort of position and importance of of animals like whales in the in an ecosystem? Of course, um, they they're they're top predators. So that if you take them out, that affects the food chain and then the populations of animals in 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 the sea. But also, we're learning at the end of their lives, whales bodies themselves are could can be quite useful stores of carbon sort of so, so they, they can be unlikely climate heroes in, in, a, in a way over their long lives and um, so what was the sort of importance of these creatures in in their ecosystems such a good question um if you, th- if you consider the removal from the ocean of the biomass of three million large animals from in the 20th century for instance no matter it's not taking into consideration hunting now but um the 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 cycle of those whales so their feces fertilize the ocean um which of course sequestrates uh, carbon dioxide because they uh, the feces um fertilize uh, phytoplankton and then that fertilizes zooplankton or feeds zooplankton there's a whole uh great chunk being taken out of that cycle of uh, of sequestering carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide from the from the from the uh, uh, atmosphere um, and then the thing that 
I, I love this notion that you're alluding to, Luke, is, the, is, is whale fall. It's known as whale fall. It's, it's rather poetic and Shakespearean. It's the, it's the dark, dead whale that slowly sinks to the bottom of the ocean and there becomes a whole new ecosystem in itself. There are entire species like the Osidex worm, which are entirely predicated, their life cycle is entirely dependent on a rotting whale. Uh, if you think of the amount of nutrition that's released by that for its flesh and its bone, um, you have these bone-eating worms. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a wonderfully – it reminds me of the, the, the section, the Tempest, where Ariel talks about a drowned sailor lying there and his bones make coral and his pearls make eyes. And there's something very beautiful about that process because it's, it's the process of life as much as it is the like, process of death. Can I – just wind up by asking you, why why Antarctica matters to you? Rather like the whale, there's something unreachable and huge and numinous and mysterious, um, but real, and that one day you might get to go there, and one day you might have that experience. Um, there's something very beautifully fragile and hugely weighty about it at the same time. It's almost as though the Earth is weighted by these two areas, uh, and especially with the Antarctic, because we in the, uh, in, the, in the northern hemisphere feel as though we're weighted by ice. It's a kind of center of gravity thing in a way that, ah, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that holds us in place. It gives us a sense of security in a strange sort of way. Um, so... For me, that's there's still an it's 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 an impossibility. It's an impossibility that the world should still be partly frozen, um, as though it still could develop in another way or go another way. Um, it's like history frozen. Philip, thank you very much indeed for your time. My great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. A Voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. Next time, I'll be talking to Prem Gill to find out what Antarctic seals and grime music have in common. To find out more about our guests, including photos and videos, head to our website at www.ukaht.org or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow us and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Trust's Antarctica Insight programme, supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha, and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer, and music and sound design is by Alec Hughes.